Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. Yeah, so far, but uh, I just had an idea for something, so you never know what's going to be coming down the pike. On this episode, it's calendar time, and we know that time makes fools of us all. And despite our best efforts to say, this year, this year I'll be organized in my brewing. We never do, or at least I don't. So as the new year looms, let's try and get ahead of the curve. We'll explore the historical seasonality of brewing, the things we prefer to drink when the weather changes, and when to get brewing when you want a beer to be ready for an event, say a competition or a wedding. But before we do all that, let's uh, take a listen to a message from some of our sponsors. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza. Brewing a classic German beer for the modern era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Hey, thank you for sticking around. Thank you for listening to those fine messages from our fine, fine sponsors. They make this show possible. So if you reach out and you talk to them and you interact with them, make sure that you tell them that you've heard about them on Experimental Brewing or The Brew Files so they know their money is well spent. Like we said in the intro, you know, time does make fools of all of us. You know, we ha- we always have these great plans. I don't know. Uh, at least I do. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to do X and I'm going to do Y. And of course, it all falls by the wayside. So let's take a little bit of time. And I think we actually just need to talk about, you know, calendars and how they re- relate to brewing. And I can think of no better place to start than, you know, 
well, history. And once again, as we always do on this show, uh, make sure that you understand that as we talk about history, that beer history is mm, beer quote history. Uh, more, more like lore and guidelines than history. Yeah. So we just want to talk a little bit about what we uh, what we know about from you know past periods of time in terms of brewing, and yeah, I think. I think when we're talking about things the old and in the past, we need to go with you, Denny. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, traditionally, uh, everybody brewed what the weather allowed them to brew. That meant, uh, you know, in winter, they were brewing beers that uh, needed to be kept cooler. And in summer, they were brewing beers that the temperature didn't make much difference about. Uh, that's That's pretty much the way I started brewing. How about you? Oh yeah, well, I mean, I I pretty much started brewing with a chest freezer, so I broke the rules. But oh yeah, yeah. Historically speaking, until we got very clever with the use of ice and artificial refrigeration, aka chest freezers and whatnot, brewing was very much a seasonal activity. Uh, you you had uh, places where there are whole laws actually that said you can only brew during specific times of the year, and you know a lot of that was. You know, just due to the fact that, you know, hey, you know, yeast misbehaves or microbes misbehave at different temperatures. And you don't need to actually think of this as an element of the past these days because it still goes on. Uh, all you have to do is go back to the main show a couple episodes back when we talked about Cantillon. And you remember Cantillon is starting to get worried because of, you know, weather changes, shortening up the amount of time that they have to be able to actually brew. You know, their brew season used to run a couple months and now it's getting shorter and shorter and pushed later in the year due to increased temperatures. And the reason they the reason they have to worry about it is they won't brew unless the weather is absolutely perfect for it because they have to depend upon the weather to cool the beer naturally. They also have to depend upon certain cycles of temperature changes to allow different critters, different microbes to act at different rates and different times. So for them, yeah, if it's too warm, then that, that whole delicate dance that produces things like, you know, iris and their goose and, and whatnot, it, it gets, I don't know, it goes astray. Uh, the different uh, bacteria and yeast and things get a little too weird. They go haywire and it produces a beer that's off, a little too sick, maybe too acetic or too enteric. Uh, and this is a this is a real problem. But this was basically the historical way of brewing. And so brewing always kind of had a season. And you still see this reflected in some of the styles that we know and love. You know, things like, you know, the stories behind Cezanne, the stories behind uh, Merson slash Oktoberfest. And I think even a lot of home brewers out there still brew seasonally. For the first 10 years I made lagers, I only did it in the winter because I could ferment them outside in my garage in a tub of water and uh, get the right temperature for them. Yeah, a lot of home brewers don't even brew when it gets too hot. Yeah, you know, I live here in L.A., and when it gets to be 100 degrees, I don't want to be standing outside brewing. Yeah, I don't blame you, man. That's fairly insane. And it's not just because of the heat. It's also because, look, I mean, in the summertime, my groundwater averages – yeah, you know, like in the mid high seventies, which means I can't cool anything super effectively without the use of ice. Yeah, but you can get to your mash temp really quick. Yeah, my man, <laughs> my, my strike water is right there. Yeah, the hottest weather, by the way, I've, I've I've ever brewed in. I did a rye barley wine one year, outdoors in Woodland Hills. 
when the thermometer was reading 119 degrees Fahrenheit or 48C for our overseas listeners. I don't know. That was probably a stupid day to brew on, but I was teaching a class. What's the hottest you've ever brewed in a day? You know, I have no idea. I would guess probably in the mid to upper 90s, uh, you know, when it was summer here and it was in my garage. But it's one of the things I tried to wipe from my mind. That's what the beer is for. And I mean, let's face it, when it gets that hot, you also start to have challenges, you know, doing your, your fermentations, right? You know, you're talking, you know, during the winter, you could do your loggers, you know, in a bucket of water. I, I mean, in the summer, for me, my garage, I have a little therm- uh, thermometer that sits there and reports back to me the, the temperature inside the garage. I think in the summer, the hottest it ever got was about 125 under the, the during the day. Yeah, while it was like 100 degrees outside, my garage was 25 degrees warmer. So even with a chest freezer, and I have a couple of them, that's asking a lot of work out of those devices. Yeah, no kidding, man. It is unfortunately way beyond the bucket of water with ice packs stage. And that's traditionally how I do my saisons. Now, of course, I also am very fortunate that I tend to love to do saisons during summer. So those give me a little bit more leeway. But even something kind of uh, cool like a one of the brew jackets. Yeah, that won't be able to do enough. I mean, they tell they tell you those things will go down thirty degrees from ambient. Well, thirty degrees from one hundred and twenty five is still you know hot, hot for just about any strain of yeast out there, except for maybe the hothead and the Quebec strains. No. Yep. And then of course there's also the opposite side of things. I I know you crazy people up in like you know Minnesota and whatnot are brewing in the middle of winter. I don't get how you guys do that. <laughs> Something tells me that when you have to thaw out your water lines, uh, then it may be too cold to brew. Um, Yeah. Uh, So seasonality has always been kind of an important factor in terms of brewing. And like I said, there used to be laws that dictated when you could because, well, people didn't want their beer to go off. So that was a thing. Now, of course, we've moved beyond that. So nowadays, when we think about seasonality in terms of brewing, it's not about when we can brew because brewing is now a 24 by 7, 365 activity. We now kind of think of style, seasonality, and appropriateness. And just to start off with some general rules of thumb, these are mine. I don't know, Denny, you might have different ones. Uh, For me, I always think of, you know, in terms of style appropriateness for the season, if it's cold and wet outside, then I want something bigger and richer. If it's hot and dry, I want something lighter and drier. What about you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same. I'd say the same for me uh, to a certain extent. But uh, what I like to drink plays a large part in that too. You know, uh, I'm not a I'm not a huge stout and porter fan these days. So even when it gets cold and wet, I don't tend to brew a lot of those. But I do admit that if I'm going to brew one, I'm more likely to do it then. Yeah, and of course, we also know that in this day and age of pastry stouts and barrel-aged everything with extra fruit additions and cigars or whatever. Seasonal appropriateness feels like we're talking a little bit like about not wearing white after Labor Day. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, but but we don't care about that either. I know. Well, I just worry about, you know, which variety of tennis shoes I get to wear. <laughs> but it is true. I mean, uh, I've talked in the past on the podcast about you know, going to, say, bottle shares when it's 110 degrees out and people are pulling out 14% pastry stouts and... That's just a no. (laughs) Not for me, thank you. Right. And so, but in addition to that sort of style seasonality, to me, there's also styles that I just associate with seasons and they have traditions behind them. Big one is Bach beers. Bach beers are forever in my mind, forever associated with spring. 
and and right in there you also got like your march beers and your your some of your saisons and beer de marses and that that type of thing is are those kind of spring beers and of course i don't know if bock beer is traditionally a, a spring seasonal idea in germany uh it's escaping my mind right now i always just think about it from the u.s point of view example example mm-hmm. my bock well yes my bock but the, the traditional box, at least, you know, the thing I always think about is the stories I heard when I was growing up of my grandfather going off and in the spring here in the U.S. buying up cases and cases of Bach beer to to store away. And the fact that it was so rich and syrupy that it was made from cleaning the, the, the tanks out once a year and taking all the dregs out of the tank. And that was how they made Bach beer. I mean, it turns out that I mean, here in the U.S., there was a real strong push to make a springtime Bach beer tradition uh, by the forerunner of the Brewers Association because they wanted to have they wanted to have a, a or introduce a notion of seasonality to the U.S. so that people had something to look forward to and it was like a special thing and that was Bach beer for forever and a day and so that one's the kind of the key high one I always think about in terms of seasonal traditions right and then of course you have your Oktoberfest that happened for the fall because October would be you know, remiss if we didn't also mention the sort of complete seasonal appropriateness or association of barley wines and old ales and strong ales and Russian imperial stouts or wee heavies or whatnot around the winter time. You know, when everybody wants to have that winter warmer. Yeah, I mean, again, that's not something I drink a lot of, but when I do, that's when it is. And uh, speaking of which, I still miss those days when you could actually go get the uh, the little nips. <laughs> Yeah, well, they quit making those bottles, man, so we got to stop living in the past. I know, but it was kind of nice to be able to have like a seven-ounce bottle of barley wine. <sighs> uh, you know, we we have friends who would say that a 22-ounce bottle of barley wine wouldn't be enough. Yes, but they're weird. <laughs> looking, looking at you, Paul. Now, let's talk a little bit about, you know, okay, those are seasonal things that people, you know, think about. What do we like to drink in the seasons? Uh, To my mind, if I'm going to think about brewing something seasonally appropriate, of course, I'm going to take a lesson from Denny and I'm going to brew things that I like to drink, which means that there's still going to be a lot of IPAs thrown around everywhere. But in general, for me, like in the springtime, I really like hoppy wheat beers. So, you know, take things like my springtime in Amarillo or my gumball head uh, clone or the citrus saison. What about you, Denny? For me, it's going to be uh, American pale ale, American IPA, uh, maybe a pilsner, and maybe if I really get motivated, I'll make a Maybach. And in the summer, of course, now we're in the hot and, you know, at least here in LA, dry uh, season. And I really prefer shocker saison. And yeah, you know, particularly my table says on the, the ordinary one that I that I always brew. I love that beer during the summer because it's just so refreshing. And then uh, this also should not come as a surprise since it was one of the first episodes of the Brew Files. I also really like a cream ale during the summer. For me, it's uh, American Pale Ale, American IPA, and Pilsner. Uh, you sensing a bit of a trend? I might be. Uh, when we get into the fall, uh, I like something with a little bit more of a chew to it, so something like a brown or an amber. And, you know, of course, Martzen classically falls in there. And I actually really like Bach beers there, too. So fall for me is a little bit a little bit hardier, a little bit chewier, because after all, I have to ward off the 70 degree nights here. For me, uh, fall, it's going to be American Pale Ale, American IPA and uh, an an American brown ale, my no tie brown that I just absolutely love. And I have brewed two batches of recently because 
when fall comes around, I realize I haven't brewed that recipe since last fall, and I love it, so I want to make sure I'm stocked up to get me through the rest of the winter. Uh, I might also kind of like uh, toss in, oh, maybe a triple or maybe a Belgian dark strong that can kind of sit there and uh, age away until a little bit later in the fall and into the winter. Mm. No Pilsner? Generally, by fall, uh, I have so many other things that I want to brew. I'm past Pilsner. And then, of course, that leads us into winter. And I know that we've already talked a lot about, you know, say, barley wines and old ales and all that. But uh, in truth, I'm not a big barley wine guy. Yeah, you know, I used to be, but I'm I'm not anymore either, really. I mean, that, uh, probably like right around Christmas, I'll go out and buy one of my favorites to just sit and sip. But that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I think these days the closest I get to like a barley wine is say, you know, a Jubilee or something like that. I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of Victory's Old Horizontal, so uh, and maybe it's just nostalgia because of when I first had it. But uh, I'll generally go out and buy one of those during the winter and wait until a really cold day, build a fire in the wood stove, and uh, drink that. There you go. But and so since I don't like you know, say big burly wines. I mean, I do actually like, you know, some of the wee heavies out there. I mean, I like a truck warehouse or something like that, but even then that's still a rare thing for me just because they feel so heavy and syrupy. Uh, and so to me, I actually tend to go with big spicy Belgian brews. So Denny, you were talking about, Hey, you know, during the fall, maybe I'll brew a, a Belgian dark, dark strong. And to me, those are, those are my favorite sort of, you know, cold weather beers. I like those. Yeah, I, I agree, man. If I don't have something uh, like a Rochefort uh, that I made myself around, then I'll go out and buy some because to me, that's the, at least for me, that's my perfect beer for that time of year. And a lot of other things, man. I mean, it's like, you know, Scaldus Noel, I just absolutely adore and it's getting harder and harder to find, but that's a great winter beer also. Yeah, I find it depends upon the batch and the bottle. I've had some Scalduses where they're so fusely that, that I just couldn't take them. Yeah, well, you know what, man? It's so hard to find now. I'd even take one of those. I believe that it stopped being imported. Uh, well, and to me, I think the big thing is the why, uh, the why I like those is not only is there the booze factor, right? You know, you get that rich warmth from uh, from the alcohol, but also the fact that since they are Belgian, they do tend to run very dry in their finish. And so they, they just feel a lot better going down, at least to me. You know, and one other one that I'm sure you'll be not at all surprised is, for me, American IPA. Uh, I find Sierra Nevada Celebration to be probably my favorite winter beer of anything that's out there. I prefer it to all the the dark, heavy, you know, malty, all the, the weird spices and stuff like that. I shouldn't say weird, but I did, so... Uh, all the spices and stuff like that, uh, you know, those just don't do it for me. What I like is that nice blast of hops. And again, it's got a really dry finish. So that works just like you were saying. I forget. Does Sierra Nevada still insist that Celebration isn't an IPA? No, I think that they readily admit that it is. For years, they used to they used to insist. The Celebration is not an IPA. It's like, um... <laughs> okay, fine. But we know better. Right. Uh, anything else on uh, seasonality of style? Oh, probably, but I can't think of it now, so we'll just spare people my ruminations. <laughs> uh, well, you're, hey, your ruminations are doing pretty well for somebody who just had surgery. So Yeah, right. So from style appropriateness, let's actually talk about how to actually target 
think about timelines for beer because that's the other thing. That's where, you know, all of our planning tends to fall down, right? Really kind of think about it this way. This is either, hey, I want to be able to brew for a particular competition or if you're me and you're not a competitor, I want to brew for a particular event, say a homebrew festival or a wedding. You want to have those beers in line and get them ready and in tip-top shape uh, so that you know people can enjoy them. There are a couple of calendars that people have put out there that uh, we'll include some links to in the show notes, so you can actually see you know like what people uh, tend to recommend if you want beers targeted for certain periods of time. But they're all very seasonal based in terms of like oh if you want to get a Bach done for spring then you got to do it then. Um, this, uh, this talk here is really more about, you know, how to actually get to a particular date. So some basic rules of thumb, uh, the bigger the beer is, the more time to give it because you'll, you know, one, they'll be able to last longer, but also you'll need some more time to sort out anything that may potentially go wrong with the fermentation and also just a little bit more time for age. However, because this is, you know, a human practice, there are always exceptions to the rules. And the exception here is when the beer is all about that hot presentation. So those, uh, at least I will recommend that you get those moving quickly. And in fact, if you're, say, doing a competition like the NHC, where you have two rounds, we, I highly recommend that if you have a hoppy beer, like an IPA, that you go and you rebrew that IPA before the second round so that you're presenting fresh hops to everybody. And that can also be true if you're uh, having a, a more delicate beer, something like a like an American wheat beer, a Pilsner, something like that. You may want to think about rebrewing that closer to competition time also. The freshness does matter, but hops in particular uh, – well, hops in particular are not age-friendly. No. The smaller the beer, the faster the turnaround time can happen. And if, if you want good examples of that, all you have to do is look at our speedy brewing uh, episode of the brew files. That was episode 36. So 14 episodes back. And if you go and you listen to that, we give you all sorts of tips and tricks to get beers turned around in no time. Uh, it's called my usual preface panic uh, motor brewing. If you are going to be bottling, uh, make sure that you add at least two weeks to our suggested times so that you can uh, have properly carbonated bottles or go invest in kegs. You'll thank us. <laughs> right. And last but not least, and this one I consider to be very important. If your beer doesn't make it on time, aka it's not going to be ready in tip top shape, don't try and force the issue on it. Uh, serve something else. Uh, and just remind people that brewing is, it's an imprecise organic science. It's a bit of a craft and, you know, those critters that we depend upon to make our beer don't always play well with our mere human notions of time. For me, I long ago discovered that I could not brew for a competition. Uh, if I wanted to enter a brewing competition, it had to be one of those that I had already brewed and I would taste it and go, whoa, that's really good. I'm going to enter it. Brewing for a competition has never worked for me. Uh, that's me, though. I know that there are other people who are very successful in doing it. Uh, so if you're going to try that, pay attention to the schedule. Any other rules? Do your damn best. Now, these are, these are some general guidelines. This is how long I think uh, some of these styles will take to produce reliably. Use this as you will. So the first, the first category is multi-year brews. These are the things that you, know, you need multiple years in order to make happen. And to my mind, you have to be the patron saint of logistics planning to actually make these happen <laughs> for an event. Really? Uh, you know, these, are, these are things I can kind of consider to be more like, oh, hey, I happen to have this on hand. Ta-da! And that would basically be 
your lambics, your gooses, any of your sour ales that require actual time to uh, mature. Uh, those were going to require multiple years. If you have very strongly flavored meads, for instance, as well, those might take multiple years in order to get into tip top form and ready to go. Once again, if you can target multiple years ahead of time, uh, you should look at being in the logistics industry because you can make a hell of a living being a scheduler kind of in the more practical side of things, you know, sort of the year long projects. These are the things where, you know, you've got that big thing coming up, either that big uh, party or the big competition. And you're like, ah, well, I have a year from the day. This is what I want to make. This is where your barley wines and your Russian Imperial stouts, particularly your barrel aged uh, Russian Imperial stouts go. Uh, Anything that's massive and monstery. Uh, So take like my Falcon's Claws recipe that we've talked about before, 14% lager. That thing has a year-long fermentation and maturation time built into it just by tradition. And in my mind, it really gets served well by having that one year. Anything else in the year? Well, you know, I think that even barley wines can be more than a year. I wouldn't give them less than a year. But my biggest barley wine win was when I was uh, popping open a bottle of five-year-old Old Stoner barley wine. Tasted it and went, damn, that's really good. Entered it in the state fair and uh, got a blue ribbon for it. So, again, that was one of those that I just happened to have on hand and decided to enter. And it was more than a year old. But I wouldn't give things like barley wines and Russian Imperial Stouts less than a year. Uh, on the other hand, if you're going to want to enter a triple, people tend to think that triples need to age a long time because they can be high alcohol. And there are a lot of crazy people who make their triples higher alcohol than they probably need to be. But a triple, due to the preponderance of pills mauled in it and stuff, really needs to be fresher than that. And generally, a few months is going to be enough for a triple, don't you think? Yeah, although I do know that sometimes using like 3787 from Y-East, sometimes I feel that that needs a little more time, at least for me. But yeah, I agree. I think the general rule of thumb here is anything that is meaty and malty and probably like, say, 10% or above. That's that's where you're at in this uh, year long process, but yeah, triple triple definitely defies those rules because it's more about those yeast phenolics and the the kind of the crispness. And and you know the the light malden is going to oxidize pretty easily too, so you don't want to make it too far in advance, but you want to make it far enough so that all those flavors have a chance to kind of meld together. And then now speaking of that same sort of timeline, we move up to say six months. You know, when you got six months to your event or your competition, things to start, you know, thinking about brewing, you're still in the big end of things, you know, but uh, with a little more restraint. So uh, this is where I kind of tend to think of things that are between eight to 10%. And again, accepting, you know, say double IPA. Uh, so your big box, your doppel box, your big Belgians, your triples, et cetera, uh, your uh, doubles or your Belgian strong goldens or gold or strong darks, uh, strong ales, old ales. All that sort of stuff. Also, traditionally, you see this done uh, with the Martins that we mentioned about uh, earlier in, in the show. Yeah, you know, brewed in March, hence Martin, and you know, lagered through the summer and, and released for Oktoberfest in late September. This is kind of that area. So again, we're still in the bigger area, but not massive. Does that make sense? Yep, makes sense to me. And then we get down to, say, from six months to three months. Now, once you get to three months, you really are starting to get into the land of just about everything. And to me, this is still, it's moderate alcohol with stronger flavors. So that's like your your alt beer, 
your rock beer, uh, spicy things. I like Hellas to have a little bit, a little bit of time on it. If you're going to do uh, traditional Pilsner forms, traditional Pilsner here in terms of fermentation schedule, the, your stronger saisons. So, like even my my winter saison, which is nominally an eight to nine percent beer, actually can tends to fall into here. Uh, so the, the super saisons and a little bit more like the regular strength saisons fall in at about the three month mark. I think. Any other styles you throw? Well, what do you think about uh, British styles, like a, like an ESB or something like that? Do you think that they would go in in this time range? An ESB, an ESB maybe if it was a strong ESB, but I think an e, I think ESBs in most British styles, other than the olds and all that, fall into the two and under. Right. Well, let's move on to that then. Yep. So the two months. Now here we are. We're at your moderate alcohol and more uh, moderate flavors. So again, this is like browns, ambers. ESBs, uh, wit beers to me uh, kind of fall into a two-month range just to give those spices sometimes to come together. Uh, your stronger IPAs, I think, you know, like your, even some of your big doubles uh, fall into that two-month range because you do need a little bit of time for the hops and everything else to kind of come together. Um, and again, we're really at the point where two months you can brew a whole swath of beers, but now really what you've cut out is a lot of the higher alcohol stuff. That's very, very true. I think that, uh, you know, anything other than, well, I guess, what we could call extreme beers, meaning higher alcohol, is going to be generally in that, like, uh, two-month, uh, or at the very least, three-month and under category. That leaves under a month. Let's say that it's it's time, your palms are sweating, you know that this event is right around the corner, and your brain is swirling with things to plan, and you realize that there are still some things that you haven't done or brewed. This is where you can brew all your hoppy stuff, anything anything hoppy almost. So particularly your pale ales, definitely any hazy IPA or pale ale that you're doing because nightmares. And basically anything with hops up front and in your face. Then also anything sessionable. So this is where most of your British beers fall into, right? You know, this is where your ordinary bitters, your, your mild, uh, your stouts, even, you know, not your Russian Imperial Stouts, but your regular Stouts or Porter or anything like that, they can all get into the into the tank and out of the tank in under a month. I mean, most of these beers, most of those sessionable beers can actually be turned around in 10 to 14 days. Think about your local brewery. They're doing everything in their power to get that beer in and out as fast as they can because beer that sits in tanks, that's not money. So it's just taking taking up money. And so your local brewery is going to push most of its thing, most of its beers out in about two weeks. So you can do the same thing I have said before in the speedy brewing episode. I think most home brewers take way too long in terms of their fermentation cycles, their schedules, and how how quickly they push. But of course, it's a hobby. We don't have to push. Yeah, right. That's what I was going to say. I mean, there's uh, how long it can take and how long you want to take. Uh, I used to take huge amounts of time with my beers. It, it was not uncommon for me to be like, you know, two months from the time I brewed till the time I drank that beer. These days, I can generally whip through my fermentation in 10 or 12 days, uh, keg it, and be drinking it in a couple weeks. Neither way is right or wrong. It depends on you and your life and your tastes. And, oh, and I forgot one other thing that I think definitely has to fall in the undermonth category. Yes? Your wheat beers. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like American wheats. Uh, I guess even a Hefeweizen would uh, probably be in that category too, huh? Absolutely. The best Hefeweizen I ever had uh, in my life was 
one that won the Mayfair Bester Show done by a friend of mine named Steve Cook. And by the time he bottled it and entered into the competition, the day the bottle arrived at competition, it was 10 or 12 days old. <laughs> yeah. And it was the creamiest, freshest, most lovely glass of Hefeweizen I've ever had in my life. I think you do yourself a real disservice, particularly with wheat beers, if you let those sit for too long. All right. Any anything else about in that under month category? No, man. I think I think you did a brilliant job and covered everything. I want that stated for the record and carved into stone. <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, go and listen to the the Speedy Brewing episode if you want some tips. A lot of times when I'm brewing for a festival, say the Southern California Homebrew Festival, my last month before that festival is me basically cramming as many brew sessions into a single week as I can, just so I can turn around and I can bring you know, five to seven to 10 beers. And most of those beers that I'll be pouring have been brewed in less than two months. So no excuses. Get your butts brewing. This is what you can do. Any other thoughts standing on, on time and calendars and brewing? Only that, remember, this is all totally subjective. Uh, it's what works for you. Remember, uh, we all have lives that are different. So, uh, maybe, maybe a particular brewing schedule that we advocate and use won't work for you. Uh, but if you have the freedom to do this, give some of these a try and see what happens. No, no, no. It's my schedule. It will work for everybody. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I forgot about that. I should know that by now, huh? Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here, here is a little interesting a note, though, that I have found from uh, writing down every single brew session in my notebooks. Without even attempting to, I tend to brew the same beer just about the same time every year. And it's, it's like, there's no planning. There's no going back and thinking, Oh, I, you know, I guess it's about time of year to brew this. It's like, Oh, this is what I want. It's like my no tie brown ale. I was looking back through my notebook on uh, the last batch that I brewed. I brewed the previous vat, bat. I brewed the previous batch exactly one year to the day before. Well, you know. Even salmon still somehow with those tiny little brains still <laughs> yeah, return man. up the right river. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it, it's one of those things that is really interesting. And I think that that kind of goes back to what we were saying about the organic schedule that people have kept for so long. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of time and brewing. Does this change your plans for the coming year? Are you going to be like Denny and naturally brew? you know, according to some mystical schedule set in the heavens? Or are you actually going to plan things out? In which case, why? <laughs> like I said, I brew, for, I, I brew for events and I'll brew for a competition every once in a while. But make sure that you now are armed with the knowledge of what exactly it is that you need to do. So what are you going to be making? What are you going to be targeting? Are you going to a fest? Are you going to a competition? You got a competition that you're eyeing or a wedding that's needing beer? Let us know. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum out there. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, 
Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and it's rapidly ending, is... It is Nowzad, helping animals in Afghanistan and the soldiers who find them and care for them. And one other way you can support us is by going to brewswag.com and entering the code EXPERIMENTAL when you check out. They have some really cool, well, what would you expect? Bruce Swag there. Check them out, buy something, and help out the podcast. Don't forget, somewhere there's a homebrewer who needs a Christmas gift from you. That's right. BrewSwag.com. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. <laughs>